welcome to Radio Zaza, uh, short for Radio Zaddy. This week we've got something slightly different. I've got a guest with me who I will introduce in just a second. Um, because I have some housekeeping to do, I've been called out on the fact that last time I didn't actually get to the end of my argument and I only said why there might be queer women outside. I never said why there might be less uh, cishet women outdoors. So yeah, basically... I'm going to come back to that just right now. So there's like one of my primary primary reasons for thinking this or like thinking that this might happen is that we grow up in like uh, we live in like a very gendered society. You know, little girls, quote, are sent to brownies. Little boys are sent to scouts. The boys at scouts are taught that the outdoors is somewhere that they're entitled to, that they get to go and have fun. And the girls at brownies, I remember sitting there and doing like sewing and drawing and like not going outdoors almost at all. And I do think that that's probably quite different now than in when I was younger. But I was also, as part of that, was kind of taught that the outdoors was scary and dangerous for a girl in a way that it doesn't didn't seem to be for boys and so I think that what that does is it kind of played into this idea that boys can be outside and should be outside and that girls shouldn't be outdoors and for queer people we kind of exist in in a space that's sort of outside of normal society as it were and I think that with that comes a tendency to ex explore more adventure more like to seek out things that don't necessarily conform with gender roles but if you're a cishet woman you never really get or you never may never have the opportunity to kind of explore other interests of yours because you've already been told that girls don't like being outdoors and there may come like a lot of fear with trying new things and and I think that that's probably why there doesn't seem to be as many women outdoors, uh, cishet women outdoors, as queer women. At least to me, but then also I might have a confirmation bias and I might just be seeing them everywhere I go because I want to. <sighs> so there's that. That's the end of my little thought that I, I started two weeks ago. But this week... I'm very excited to introduce Meg Roberts, a historian uh, from the University of Cambridge. And we're going to be talking about something that I find fascinating and Meg has been researching. So, Meg, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Anna. How are you? Yeah, what have you been up to today? I've been doing quite a lot of recording, actually. <laughs> so this is the end of a long day of recording. Um, I've been recording a lecture for undergrads about the American Revolution. Oh my um, goodness. Which has been extremely painful because I have to talk to a computer, like to an empty Zoom that is, I'm the only participant. <laughs> um, and I'm screen sharing to myself. Wow. Um, a lonely experience. It's very lonely. And I can, like, I can play to an audience, but I cannot. I get it right when I'm just talking to myself. So it's been excruciating. So this is already a lot more fun. Okay, cool. <laughs> I'm glad I was going to say. <laughs> like, it's not just me, which is excellent. <laughs> cool. I was going to say, I'm really sorry. This is more recording no, on top of that. But at least good. I'm here to keep you company. So there's that. <laughs> In our little fort. Um, this <laughs> fort is shorter than normal, so we're quite hunched over. But I hope that the sound comes out okay. I'm loving the fort. I feel like there is something quite queer about <laughs> You've got to hide away from the outside world and make your own rules within the fort. That's the whole thing. Yeah, that was a good time. I remember um, being first given a knife to hold when I was making my own fort out of a box. Oh, adorable. What a great time. Probably shouldn't have been given that knife, but I do remember it very well. So, Meg, tell us, just a headline, what you're going to talk to us about. Um, so, basically, I'm going to talk about queer top hats and why top hats... I think have appealed to queer people throughout history. Why the history of the top hat uh, specifically is very, very queer. We kind of get this like traditional narrative of um, the top hat as a very kind of masculine, capitalist, imperial symbol. Yeah, actually, like Isambard Kingdom Brunel always has a massive top hat. Exactly, on. and that 
in itself is saying a lot about his sense of masculinity and I think the top hat does a lot of work to kind of display people's relationship with their gender and their masculinity um and the usually the histories of the top hat there aren't actually that many histories of the top hat I've been trying to um brand myself as a top hat historian um recently which I've only been able to do because I don't think there are any other ones (laughs) hey you gotta Um, be first in the field yeah um so yeah, traditionally the top hat, the history of the top hat has been, yeah, extremely masculine, capitalist, mm. imperial, industrialist, really. But there's also this kind of thread of top hat history from right when it was invented, when you, the first top hat kind of emerges into the world that is very kind of associated with effeminacy and kind of playing with gender and kind of gender nonconformity. And it becomes a symbol of. Or, or more of an expression, I think, for mm. queer people throughout history. Um, not necessarily, it's not a mainstream symbol, but it kind of pops up occasionally in various aspects of queer history. And I did a project a couple of years ago that started to chart this history, and then I've been building on that since then. That's really um, cool. Why? But why? Why, Meg? Well, <laughs> <laughs> why did you decide to do this? Um, well, I mean, it's always been quite personal, really. I think I always say that it started in an antiques and vintage shop in Brighton I was okay um I was on a trip to Brighton with some friends and it was the first like it was at the end of the year where I was first really kind of experimenting with my sexuality and expression of my sexuality Mm. and we were just in this vintage shop and I saw this top hat and it just felt like I just (laughs) it radiated queer it did and I just I just felt so it felt so familiar I think it just felt like of course I would want to wear this top hat like of course I want to buy that top hat immediately and put it on my head Mm. and I did and then I wore it around Brighton um and you can kind of do that in Brighton (laughs) yeah Um, I suppose so yeah and and it was really fun and I am very fond of that initial top hat. But since then, I've kind of come to think of it as it was one of many kind of aesthetics that I was like trying on, as finding my sort of queer aesthetic. Right. And one of those, partly because I was watching Gentleman Jack at the time and right, of was very inspired by Anne Lister. Not, I, yeah, it's a difficult it's difficult idolizing Anne Lister because she was a terrible, terrible person and a Tory and a landlady, and it was just, mm, just yeah. There's quite a lot in the like if you read some of her stuff, it's quite predatory and it's grim. Yeah, quite like in like misogynistic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's she had her own way of carving out her own lesbian identity because there hadn't really been a lesbian identity before. Mm. But because I mean, she didn't actually wear a top hat. Gentleman Jack puts her in a top hat. Um, the costume designer was sort of drawing on people I'll talk about later, the ladies of yeah. Langothlin, who wore riding habits. Um, that that was their kind of uh, uniform almost. Right, okay, um, so it wasn't like true to Anne Lister, but it was no. kind of true to the queer, uh, I don't know, zeitgeist? I don't think I actually yeah. know what that means, but like the, the <laughs> queer vibe that was going yeah. on at the time. Yeah, it was. it is very consistent with sort of expressions of queerness in the sort of, mid 19th century mm. um early to mid 19th century so yeah it, it's interesting in itself because now after gentleman jack <laughs> shibden hall have started using the top hat as part of their kind of iconography and they oh. use it on their publicity but it wasn't actually original to anister oh, so um, yeah. i know but i mean th- then it kind of creates all of these debates over 
is it more important now for queer people now seeing Anne Lister as an icon? Is it more important to identify oh. with, like, if the top hat is important as that kind of symbol for them? I say them, very much includes me. But, um, <laughs> um, is it more important to kind of represent that in, in Anne Lister's home than the sort of true to life um, situation? Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Like, um, wanting to go and experience part of the history the history part that she represents as opposed to going to learn about the awful person she was yeah you know but yeah anyway I'm really excited to to learn more yeah where would you like me to start really should I start with the well, original the original top hat I, I could, mean yeah supposedly absolutely that would be a really can, good place to start I can, I can try so it's very contested I would say because oh. so there's there's a story about the man who is meant to have invented the top hat I don't think he did I re- like it's so this uh there's a newspaper article about him in 1797 and then it kind of gets picked up by newspapers a hundred years later as like the original uh mm. sighting of the top hat and yeah. they kind of make it into this big thing it's all, it's spun into a whole history of the top hat mm. I don't think it actually was legitimately the first one so just the first um, record Poten- well, like... beca- but potentially the first in England, right? But it does seem to have been invented in either Italy or France around this time. That makes sense. Um, in the sort of early 1790s okay. or even 1780s. But this newspaper report declares that on January the 16th, uh, 1797, this guy John Hetherington was hauled into court to answer to the Lord Mayor quote, on a charge of breach of the peace and inciting to riot because he appeared in the public highway wearing upon his head what he called a silk hat, which was offered in evidence, a tall structure having a shiny luster and calculated to frighten timid people. The officers of the Crown (laughs) stated several women fainted at the unusual sight, while children screamed, dogs yelped, and a small boy was thrown down by the crowd that had collected and had his arm broken. Oh my god! So the, These people were not ready for the top hat! They were not ready. So so the story goes, the top hat emerged into this kind of scene of riot. <laughs> like, there is god. a mob. It causes a mob and a riot. And it's, I mean, it's kind of, it's pretty violent, which ties into this whole narrative of, like, the top hat as a kind of imperial, industrial, masculine... Aggressive thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but actually, I think it's kind of camp. Like, so John <laughs> Hetherington just strides into onto the strand. With his fancy new hat. With his fancy new hat. And he's just kind of, yeah, like, I can imagine him kind of swaggering down the road. And people's shock not being because it was a sort of aggressive sight, but more because it was so beyond anything thing they'd seen before it was kind of pushing the boundaries of hat wear and sort of sartorial like gender conformity um yeah. like it's it feels like it's pushing boundaries right from the beginning that's so funny yeah so and then i think pretty soon after that the top hat becomes in all of these kind of later histories of the top hat it's kind of they skip this bit where it becomes very much associated with kind of effeminacy and the dandy and the fop oh. um so that so in 
kind of late 18th century London, there's this figure of, of the macaroni or the fop, the kind of very extravagant, very luxurious, posh man, essentially, yeah. who is too in touch with his feminine side, which has been brought about by his kind of living in luxury. He's had yeah. too much just given to him on a plate. He's not had to do hard work. He's not had to do hard work. And because of that, he can wear this very shiny hat, very tall <laughs> and delicate. Um, it's too shiny for a man. Too shiny. <laughs> it's um, also just increasingly tall. <laughs> so it's just kind of like balancing on his head. Mm. Um, so the... Yeah, this kind of figure of the the fop kind of develops into uh, the idea of a dandy. So kind of think like Oscar Wilde. Um, the the kind of famous dandy is called Beau Brummel, and he is kind of famed for being so he's so concerned by his appearance that nothing else really matters. Wow. Um, so I'll just find a quote uh, from. from Beau Brummel, he boasted, My neckcloth, of course, forms my principal care, for by that we criterions of elegance swear, and costs me each morning some hours of flurry to make it appear to be tied in a hurry. <laughs> so he's putting hours into his appearance. Yeah, but also um, putting hours into making it look just just done quickly. Exactly. Oh, I, oh, I just threw this thing together. Exactly, that's the whole, like, that is dandyism. Wow. And he's a kind of a model of, like, gentlemanly and dignified refinement, mm. which kind of, it becomes early, early in the 19th century, it's kind of a figure of ridicule. Like, the dandy is kind of, there's a lot of uh, satirical prints about dandies that usually wearing top hats. Okay. They're usually, it's seen as a kind of extravagant thing. And, yeah, they're, yeah, they're not, particularly flattering pictures <laughs> um, <laughs> because it's seen as kind of a, a cult of like self-worship it's seen as um being vain yeah very very vain and Bo brummel particularly is kind of rumored to, well he he's never really associated with any woman he's never really associ associated with any men either it's kind of this this slightly asexual history mm. that he's so <laughs> obsessed with himself really or indifferent to anything but his own personhood and appearance that he doesn't really have time to be concerned with <laughs> with other people so which in itself is pushing the boundaries because at the time it would have he should have settled down with a nice woman like mm, that was yeah. the kind of the classic that was the well, way he should have given in to like pressures to dress not like he did exactly yeah. exactly but ironically dandyism becomes quite fashionable <laughs> because as much as people are kind of mocking people like Beau Brummel and eventually Oscar Wilde mm. their way of dressing so with the very, very carefully put together cravat and the waistcoats and this very elegant style and the top hat become the fashion, the dominant fashion of the 19th century. This is what we see in like Brunel's wardrobe. Like he's always wearing very similar things. If you watch any kind of period drama set in the 19th century with any industrialists or imperial leaders, they're always wearing a top hat and they're wearing mm. what a few decades earlier was kind of seen as the outfit of, of the dandy. So it's kind of appropriating this I, kind of queer culture, well, queer costume. Yeah, well, I think that happens a lot, you know. I think it happens still that people, like, cishet people appropriate or, like, adopt the the dress sense that is first experimented with by queer people you know i remember never ever seeing any of my male friends in skinny jeans until like gay men started wearing skinny jeans and now uh, also like there was a whole time when you used to be able to recognize a queer woman by whether or not she was wearing flannel or, and like a beanie and now that's just 
clothes apparently so like i think i think queer people do lead the way we lead the way it's true i think there is something about the queer aesthetic which is because i wonder if it's something about being so worried about how you present and so having to overthink it almost and Mm. there's something about that in dandyism in really analyzing every aspect of your outfit because you're having to think about what other people are viewing in you and how you're presenting to the world Um, and I think that was just as much the case in the early 19th century as it is now yeah wow (laughs) so after well so as the industrial imperialists and basically the capitalist men of England are appropriating the top hat. Yeah. It's also being kind of reappropriated for, by queer women okay. at the time, like the ladies of Langothlin. So So it's gone from queer men to straight men to queer women. Yeah. Cool. But fairly simultaneously. Like right, it's a right. kind of back and forth. Yeah. Um mushing around. Yeah. And so yeah, the early so the ladies of Langothlin are quite famous lesbians. There's no actual proof that they were lesbians. I mean, like, what do they want, to see them doing it? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, in this period, there's just no way of really being able to tell, and a lot of historians looking for explicit evidence are never going to find any queer people. So it's you kind of have to take what you can get, and there are some really, really affectionate uh, letters between them and, like, descriptions. Oh, I'm just going to find one because it's absolutely adorable. So, yeah, so the ladies were originally from Ireland and then they ran away from Ireland because they wanted to sort of run away together. They ended up in Wales, in a little village in Wales called Langochlan. They were kind of accepted. Um, People just didn't really ask any questions. It was kind of accepted that they just kind of got on with their own lives. They were also aristocrats, so like there was a certain amount that they could just get away with. Yeah, you've um, got money. Yeah. You can do what you like. So they were called Eleanor Butler, Butler and Sarah Ponsonby. And in, I think it's Eleanor's diaries, um, she consistently refers to Sarah as my beloved, delight of my heart, my love, uh, my heart's darling. Oh my gosh, it's that's so lovely. adorable. <laughs> so they're so affectionate towards each other. They grow all together. It's really lovely. And they in public are always seen in a riding habit so at the time um, a women's riding habit would would have been essentially a black dress and and sort of outerwear and sort of black long black coat and whatever headwear was popular for men at the time like whatever was the sort of given headwear for men so at this point it's top hats um, so I don't know if Sarah and Eleanor had horses any at all <laughs> if they ever did any riding but they are always in their riding habits they so just, they always get to wear the hats they always get to wear the hats and they're always in black very Ann Lister and the sort of surviving pictures we have of them are usually they're usually depicted in these top hats there's also some crossover with Welsh national dress which mm-hmm. has a kind of what well, it's almost a top hat it's not quite the same doesn't shape. it kind of come in at the top it a comes in more, at the yeah. top yeah it looks a bit more like a kind of pilgrim hat from mm, yeah. the 17th century so there is also they have there's a lot of reasons that they could be wearing these these hats but I like to think that it's because that there was just this feeling that it the familiarity of the top hat for them would have been it would have been associated with masculinity at this point and something that they weren't necessarily 
allowed to wear in public or like it would have been pushing pushing the boundaries a bit to be wearing it in public Mm. and out of the context of riding exactly so it's really it's a big thing that they're wearing wearing them in public when they're not riding yeah (laughs) and i do kind of see it as a bit of a queer uniform Mm. um, because it fits in with the rest of their life that it's very unusual for them to just be allowed to just exist in in Mm. there in this little village in wales is there any evidence of them owning any horses I haven't looked into it. Oh, okay. But yeah. I mean, probably at the time, like they would have owned horses right. because of because of their class. Mm. Whether they actually went out and rode on them, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, there's been a couple of really good books about the ladies of Langothlin that are kind of go into they sort of dissect their lives, and one of them is kind of is very convinced that they were they had some kind of romantic relationship. One of them saying, "Does it?" How? What does it say about what we're looking for in queer histories that we're determined to find evidence of their of their relationship? But neither of them talk that much about the hats. <laughs> so well, I'm still looking yeah. for a book about the, 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 hats. the ladies' hats. Yeah, that's so weird. I don't know with with the whole thing about you know what does it say about us that we're desperately looking for some evidence of their queerness? I think it means that we're looking for a reflection of ourselves in history. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't have to mean anything other than that. Yeah, I don't know. I there's. I totally feel that, and I think that's what's been really pushing this project for mm. me. That feeling of familiarity when I saw a top hat, and then I got so excited when I found some potentially queer women in history that were also wearing a top hat. It just made so much sense when I oh, saw. Oh shit, that's me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I saw Anne Lister on on TV, I just related. Not to the Toryism, but to the just even her um, need to wear kind of masculine clothes, the sort of billowing linen mm, shirts and yeah. the waistcoats. And I tried, like, I was living um, in a very small conservative rural town when this show came out, and I went to the charity shop. I couldn't afford to like get my own sort of bespoke Victorian outfit, yeah. um, but I went to charity shops and I found sort of oversized men's shirts and. Um, five pound waistcoats and I kind of fashioned this Victorian um, outfit just to go with my top yeah. hat and to, and it felt great and yeah. like it it isn't necessarily I was always really worried that I would sort of um, like some people do genuinely just want to wear kind of historic clothing and that I just think that's wonderful and takes a lot of courage and also is just such a lovely expression of someone's personality mm. but for me I think it's one of many kind of queer aesthetics that I was sort of trying out during this year whereas I was working out what I wanted to look like and what I was comfortable in yeah and it's just really reassuring to have a kind of top hat like in my room and a Victorian outfit in the wardrobe one day I could choose that one day I could choose a kind of like button-up shirt one day I could just choose a hoodie yeah. like it's it's very flexible Part of your repertoire yeah exactly but I yeah I wonder whether in history that kind of meaning attached to when queer women saw this hat that was solely worn by men to take that hat and just wear it like just wearing it without a valid reason like sort of horse riding yeah was such a bold statement. Mm. Um, but it also, I think, speaks to something really kind of deep down 
this feeling of gender and, and like their feelings about gender and queerness mm. and, and um, that masculinity doesn't just belong to men exactly yeah um and i think that is reflected the whole way through the sort of remainder of top hat history which i kind of delved into a little bit so there's a strong there's a few there's a few really cool people women who were probably queer you kind of get vibes i mean this is the whole thing about you can you can never really tell but there is I think validity in getting a vibe from <laughs> from looking at pictures or prints of people doesn't make me a great historian to be like it's just a vibe that I get but I think that it's like a valid thing in queer studies to I think it's called feeling backwards I think Heather Love has written about it and Carolyn Dinshaw have written books about this connection across time and really connecting to past people who we relate past experiences and personalities that we feel chimes into our feelings as queer people Mm. um and there there's a whole kind of scholarship about that being a valid methodology which in history is a bit more taboo because you have to have the evidence you have to have the real paper trail mm. of something's existence and and like the evidence for something yeah um, it feels like surely that's like there could, there should be some leniency when it's for something like being queer which has been illegal for such a long time yeah. or like just not maybe even before it was actually illegal just not talked about at all and you wouldn't admit it and so how are we ever going to have hard evidence that this person was queer if they were never allowed to even acknowledge it to themselves like, exactly yeah, and there's there is increasingly a lot of scholarship about kind of reading against the grain because mm. you have to do that. You can read these sources that are censoring or twisting queer experiences, and you kind of have to find queer people within that. But I think there's also so much scope to go beyond that and sort of go into the yeah into these feelings and imaginations and sort of presumptions and Mm. looking at people's clothes is a really solid way of doing that because there is this very strong sense of connection that one can have to people's like historic costume yeah and I think that's something that potentially was experienced by people like queer people in history as well when they looked at these costumes on sort of other queer women so um Anne Lister is known to have visited the ladies of Langoughlin um and really identified with them kind of writes about it basically saying it's not official but they're probably this is probably a romantic relationship isn't it (laughs) and um she's like making these assumptions she Um, said that yeah she yeah she kind of um, she outed them in her secret diary. She outed them in her secret diary. Wow. <laughs> yeah, which was also a big, big thing for the time. For, like, it sort of shows Anne Lister's own consciousness of her own sexuality and of theirs. Um, that kind of connection that you just kind of get a vibe. Mm. But yeah, so there are also, there's a few other women. There's, my favourite is Mary Edwards, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, who mm-hmm. is a Civil War surgeon. Cool. Um, so she was brought up in a pretty, so I think. It was the kind of mid-19th century... Oh, no, because the Civil War was, like, the 1860s. So, like, she would have been brought up in probably the 1840s by quite liberal parents, it sounds like, who basically let her wear whatever. At the time, girls and women should have been wearing dresses, really. Like, that that was... Wearing trousers was so 
out of the question. But Mary Edwards Walker just wants to wear trousers. All she wants (laughs) is to wear trousers. And she sort of gets away with it when she's a surgeon because she's like, it's more practical for me to, I shouldn't be like wearing a dress when I'm... um, Surgeoning. When I'm surgeoning, when I'm sort of in the Civil War. And then um, she gets kidnapped by the confederate soldiers oh my God. and they try and force her to wear a dress and she absolutely refuses in prison <laughs> and then she like uh, when she after the civil war she only she, she's only ever seen in public in um with her civil war medal and her top hat <laughs> and it's a really striking image yeah um and so i kind of have been thinking a lot about like why she sort of wanted to wear well she what's really lovely about her is that she was asked at one point why she wore men's clothes and she said I don't wear men's clothes I wear my own clothes oh my god that's what Eddie Izzard says when he's interviewed about his women's dresses yes it's so powerful yeah she wears her own clothes it's so lovely and and a top hat is very much part of that and to a certain extent Because her kind of excuse for um, wanting to wear trousers and wanting to wear men's clothes, she's been able to get away with it because of surgeoning. But once she's not a surgeon anymore, that doesn't really apply. (laughs) Uh, Also, the top part is not very convenient. It's very tall. It gets in the way. It falls off, I imagine. It falls off. It's so there. She doesn't. She's obviously just wearing her top part because she wants to wear her top part. Um, And it's really there's just some lovely, lovely photos of her looking so proud of her little medal and wearing her top hat. You should send me some of these photos. I'll put them on the social media. It's wonderful. So, yeah, so I think there's there's individuals who really push the boundaries, like Ladies Langoflin and um, Mary Edwards Walker. But there's also this kind of growing culture of kind of early forms of drag. So drag kings. That's cool. It's really cool. So the these male impersonation acts, they're kind of beer hall performances that women will dress up as a variety of different male caricatures so one of them is the fop yeah so we'll be wearing top hat and there's other ones like the kind of the military man and then (laughs) like just sort of different all of these different characters but the fop is one of the most popular and uh, so there are a few different male impersonators like Vesta Tilly is really famous Hetty King and they have kind of huge groups of female fans who are very open about the fact that they are absolutely in love with <laughs> these male impersonators. Vesta Tilly is very aware of it and doesn't seem to dissuade it at all. She's like very She's happy. Yeah. yeah. Um I think both of them were married, but it's kind of eh. so it's hard to Everyone yeah. was at some point. Exactly. But it's so there's sort of again evidence who knows but um there's a really interesting have you read um tipping the velvet by sarah waters no it's not a really interesting book i mean it's fictional but she kind of writes about this kind of undercurrent of queer activity in so two of her characters are male impersonators and are also in a relationship and um, it's very scandalous, and they're How very, they're queer. They're, yeah, they're very careful to keep it sort of under wraps. Right. But it's, I, I just love the idea that there was this whole underworld 
Of, sounds like there was. It sounds yeah. I I think yeah. there must have been because like if you're, it's basically drag. Yeah. <laughs> like it's giving this real opportunity for women who would want to dress up in men's clothing anyway. They now have an outlet. They now can get paid to do it to yeah. entertain people. It's entertainment. It's complete validity. Yeah. And I just think it's it it's really. It must have been so powerful for those women who found that community. Yeah. Um, there's also a kind of growth of like cabaret and that really pushes the boundaries. So Josephine Baker, I'm actually wearing my Josephine Baker jumper oh, yes, at the it. moment. <laughs> She's a top hat. wearing a top hat. <laughs> That's um, amazing. My friend found this on Depop and was like, That's I thought so of cool. you and she bought yeah. it for me. Um, so yeah, Josephine Baker is a great one for it. Um, Marlena Dietrich mm-hmm. is a kind of icon of cabaret and also fil- like Hollywood films and is sort of, I think openly bisexual. Mm. Um, and in one of her films, she like kisses a woman. It's a big scandal. Well, it's not Ooh. a scandal. It's just like a big moment and everyone replays it over and over and over again. Strong. Yeah, but she's kind of, she herself would kind of experiment with her own clothes and would wear kind of suits and tails and top hats and stuff just in her own life. She often brought her own, like her costumes were her own clothes. That's really cool. And it does just, in in the sort of first few decades of the 20th century, there is so much more license under the guise of like performance for queer women to kind of experiment with mm. their with with their aesthetic. Yeah. Um, and that quite often includes a top hat because there are still a lot of posh men wearing top hats at this time. Yeah. It's still kind of, it's not fashionable because it's the, the sort of common people have moved on to the bowler hat or like the right. flat cap. But the you can still, you still see top hats at sort of Ascot and like the posh people. So it is still very much a costume that people can put on to be a certain type of man that's very cool it's yeah and i just like it kind of dies out after i don't know you just don't see that many top hats anymore i think Mm. like after potentially after the wars there's just a reduction in hat wearing generally interesting (laughs) Um, so there's like it's very much not the norm to go like you don't have to wear your hat when you go outside anymore um whereas sort of in the late 19th century it would have been weird if you weren't wearing a hat Got to cover your head. yeah so it does there is this real shift um and i can't work out whether it's a sort of reduction in like the top hats popularity or just the hats popularity mm. <laughs> so that's one to work out but i think it has also meant that there has there hasn't really been a queer hat i don't think so like i do i feel like the top hat is very much well the last um, of its kind well, or the only of its kind. Potentially, I mean, I'm trying to think of a of another hat that is kind of quintessentially queer. But then, I, then well, I again, didn't know, it, I didn't know that the top hat well, was. Well, yeah, so there might be others that are. So that's that's the thing is that it is, it's all about interpretation. <laughs> yeah. So I, th- yeah, I think there's a lot of scope for, I mean, any kind of sartorial item or like any piece of clothing given the right interpretation uh, or given kind of some imaginative... Because we just have to use our imaginations when it comes to queer history. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of scope there for for queerness in just, like, anything that queer people are wearing. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's fun to track the kind of queer aesthetic through one item yeah. and one thing that 
it's it's quite a bold move to put that kind of hat on your head. <laughs> like it's, it's it's not a subtle one, is it's it? It's not a subtle one. It's gosh, I bought one in last year in the Cambridge market and even in Cambridge, which is like one of the poshest places I've ever lived, it was still obviously I just I couldn't just wear a top hat. Yeah, it's sad because I own a bowler hat, but I can't just. It doesn't go with my whole vibe. Normally. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have to really commit. You I did. Do. I think I um. So uh, I remember a girl coming to my brother's part. One of my brother's parties. He had loads of friends, and I didn't have many. But he, one of his friends, turned up just like in a nice dress and whatever, and also a bowler hat, and she just pulled it off really well. Oh, she had a blazer oh, over nice. her dress. And oh, I was like, nice. that's really cool. Yeah. Don't want the dress, but like you look really cool. Yeah. Um, so I think you have to really tailor your outfit around it. You do. A good hat. Yeah, it's really hard to do. Because, like, it would have been so much more common before, but now you have to kind of go in an outfit. Like, it's, it's um, you have to have the full waistcoat and the full, like, yeah. billowing shirt, um, which isn't something I can commit to. Like, sometimes, like, I have, yeah, this Victorian costume in my wardrobe, and I think once over lockdown, I was like, I feel Victorian today. Um, <laughs> I just like put it on. But most of the time, I'm like, I just want a cosy jumper, to be honest. Yeah. Like, it's I, a lot of effort. Especially in lockdown. I'm just I'm around the house and I'm lounging. Yeah. I don't want to wear it's something It's hard to lounge. Feels, yeah. It's hard to lounge in a top hat, <laughs> I imagine. And you, know, you shouldn't be wearing your hats indoors. That was one of the no, things exactly. as well. Hat outside, hat not inside. Yes, exactly. But it's so hard to do now. I do think there's something about the association, because it is mostly posh people at Ascot now Mm, that are wearing top hats. And I think there's this real pushback against the sort of poshness of it and not wanting to be associated with that, which is like so, so valid, which is why I want to reclaim the kind of queer history of, of the top hat, because it is, it was originally such a radical thing to wear yeah. and now it, it feels so sad that it's it's just it feels like it's the domain of of the extremely posh, posh rich people <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm just imagining us having like a um you know the alice in wonderland tea party yeah where there's the mad hatter with his big hat but instead it's all queer people and they all have big top hats yes i yeah, think yeah. maybe we should do that when we're allowed we're still under lockdown i would moment, be but... so keen i'm just thinking as well i do think there is a lot in a lot of the reason that the top hat is now seen as very posh but also has this queer history is because a lot of the sources we have for tracing queer history are the aristocracy Mm. and people in positions of socioeconomic power because they had the time to write a journal yeah yeah and people like oscar wilde and dandies were rich enough that they could spend a lot of time on their appearance Mm. and actually and this is my other research i'm not actually a historian of top hats normally i'm a historian (laughs) of like 18th century american disability but um it's all history it's all history but in my other research in my like actual phd research there's i'm coming across a lot of stuff about class and the stratification of different clothing and different different aesthetics according to what class you were and it became Mm. in the sort of late 18th century because dyes were coming because you know how in like the say like the tudor period it if you had clothes that were 
in really deep colours, so sort of purples and deep reds. They were like royal colours. Royal colours, because those dyes cost so much to buy and to get them that those deep colours mm, and not look faded. Yeah, so it was only really rich people that were able to do that. Um, but then when dye becomes more accessible, as the sort of rising middle classes in... This is mostly in America, which is my frame of reference for yeah. the 18th century. But um, the as they become more accessible, the rich people are kind of like, oh man, like, how are we going to distinguish ourselves from these the people? The masses. Because we don't, we want to, we don't want to be looking like this guy from the market who hasn't been born into gentility. Oh yeah, you've got a signal, signal it, your wealth. Exactly. So then the sort of demarcation of wealth became about how much time you could put into your appearance oh. rather than about what your what clothes were made of or what they were like what colors you could put into them. Yeah. Um, so there was still a certain amount of the colour thing, like it became fashionable to wear black because to get a deep black was still very difficult and yeah. very expensive. But more and more it became about this, like fashioning your cravat to make it look like you just mm. stepped out <laughs> and just thrown it together. Yeah. Or like wearing wigs. So in the late 18th century, wigs were still the sort of one of the main forms of headwear for kind of genteel men. And quite often they'd shave all their hair off and it would be about like, having the most sort of well powdered and sort of perfectly sort of poised wig um which took a lot of effort and you couldn't just do that yourself quite often you had to have other people do it for you Mm. um and you didn't have time to do that if you were going out to work on the field um yeah so it wouldn't take the wig with you either exactly (laughs) so it became about displaying that you had the time to put into your appearance yeah rather than what you were what the actual items that you were having in your appearance yeah yeah so yeah and i think that that stays the same for a lot of the 19th century and it means that quite often the the people that i am looking at the the queer history of the top hat is quite quite an elite history because it is one of the it goes with this whole like dandyish mm. extravagant luxurious aesthetic right. that's its origin and it continues that as much as it becomes like the merchants and the factory owners that are wearing top hats as well it's still it's kind of remaining associations with effeminacy are still at that high level of aristocracy and and idleness almost so do you think there's like some parallel queer clothing item for the lower classes that we don't we just don't know about enough yet or there just Mm. isn't enough information out there about oh i hope so yeah i can't trying to think of one waistcoat that's uh, what I'm going to go with, but I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think I'm. I just feel like yeah. I feel like there should be some kind of parallel history because it's almost like because the the very like elite classes and sort of your everyday folk lived such completely separate lives. Yeah. That yeah. that there surely must be parallel histories. There surely, must yeah. be. I hope so. I mean, it's for me. It would be a similar thing with the flat cap. And I don't know anything about the history of the flat cap, really. But I felt the same kind of intrinsic need to have a flat cap. Mostly because at the time I was living in this, like, rural rural town and I wanted to fit in with the men at the uh, farmer's markets. Farmers um, wear flat caps. But it it felt very important to me that I have a flat cap. Yeah. Um, So I would like there to be a queer I think there probably is, because I know loads of queer people that own flat caps that don't own top hats. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Maybe I'm just doing, like, the... 
the posh version of, <laughs> of Queer History. But it's so hard not to because they're like otherwise you just get the records of people being imprisoned and people Aww. kind of getting sort of fined for or I mean yeah a lot worse than fined for sodomy. Um, and it's really mm. really grim histories and like there are some really exciting queer histories coming out that are less focused on the kind of aristocratic queer cultures i yeah i think they're extremely interesting and extremely important because there is this like a whole level of queer history that isn't necessarily as relatable to (laughs) like the that we don't get to hear about because it's not documented in the sources that we have access to but yeah i would i hope there are some some people whose like day job is being a queer historian (laughs) i'm like doing on the side yeah (laughs) Um, i'm sure um, there's someone looking into it if not something for you in the future maybe 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 Maybe. after after all of the american revolution stuff (laughs) no of course of course (laughs) that was amazing that was so fascinating meg thank you so much that's I just honestly I had no idea I had no idea and I, I need to know more and also buy a top hat <laughs> <laughs> well thank you for having me I can lend you a top hat also oh God, yes. <laughs> I can lend you my bowler hat I don't know if yes. it's gonna be any good but amazing please, let's do a hat trade I just think hats are wonderful <laughs> they just... are good they are good I used to have such a collection but then you know moving around loads of times you lose them it's one by really one tricky Absolutely. I've got a tricorn hat downstairs as well oh, so cool. it's so um, cool. I just really enjoy it it gets me in the zone for the history (laughs) history zone yeah exactly and it just it just feels feels great and it feels queer i don't know if the tricorn hat is queer but it should be i guess i feel like if we're wearing wearing these items they just become queer (laughs) anything we do is queer also i associate the tricorn with uh, jack sparrow who's definitely incredibly camp and queer 100 percent. yes no amazing (laughs) but uh yes thank you everyone for listening um if you want to get in touch with radio zaza we're at at radio.zaza on instagram i don't yet know the Twitter handle, so that'll be coming at some point. So thank you from me, Hannah Bestwick, and thank you, Meg Roberts, so much for coming on the show today. It's oh, been a pleasure having, having you. you. <laughs> it's been a real joy. Thanks very much. <laughs>